queens, welcome to Dose of Deception with the queens of queens, Shannon and Emily. Join our true crime family where we discuss murders, missing persons cases, mysteries, and a whole lot of conspiracy theories. So stay tuned for the wild ride. Hey queens, welcome back to this week's episode of Dose of Deception. Before we get into it, if you're a new listener, we just want to let you know what we do here on our show. In the first half, Emily comes in with a true crime case, whether it be a murder mystery or a missing persons case. And in the second half, we discuss a conspiracy theory that I bring up. We also just want to tell you about our different social media accounts we have. Our Instagram is at Dose of Deception, and we also have a Facebook group, which is also at Dose of Deception. So, Emily, I'm very excited for this week's episode, so let us know what we're talking about. <laughs> so this week, we're going to finally be discussing the long-awaited Diet Lopez incident. Yes, long-awaited so by me. I'm very <laughs> excited about this one. <laughs> now, this is definitely going to be a two-parter, because it's one of the strangest cases I have ever encountered in true mm-hmm. crime. What makes this case my favorite is because it occurred in 1959... But even though it's so old, there's camera footage and diary entries that have been preserved, which is very unusual, uh, especially for that time period. Yeah. I mean, there's cases that we do from, like, the 90s that don't have any of that stuff. exactly. But it definitely gives us an inside look into what went down and what the Russian Nine, as they are so often called, Mm -hmm. were feeling and thinking during their final days. Now, I know it was the Soviet Union at the time, but nowadays people call them the Russian Nine. Right. So I'll refer to them as that sometimes. The Russian government claims to have solved this case after 61 years. Sure. Uh, actually, only in 2020 they claim this. So they opened, Wild. Yeah, they reopened the case pretty recently. Mm. But that's why I wanted to cover it now. However, many are skeptical about this because they solved it sort of suspiciously. And I was also watching a documentary about Dyat Pass, and the investigators asked the Russian government for its files on the incident, and they were very secretive about it. Mm. Which leads many to speculate that some sort of government conspiracy is going on. Right, well, why are you so secretive about a case that is apparently solved? Exactly. <laughs> so let's get into what the Dyat Pass incident is. Mm-hmm. In 1959, nine people from the Soviet Union formed a group for a hiking expedition. The leader of the group, and one of the infamous Russian Nine, was 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov. It's actually named for them, the past. That's mm. why it's called Dyatlov Pass. It wasn't that before it. Oh. Yeah. But he's the leader, so they named it his last name. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if you go there, there uh, I watched uh, videos and listened to podcasts of people who actually went there, mm-hmm. and there's a plaque with their names on it and their pictures and stuff, so it's, oh. it's like a tribute for them. Yeah. Igor was a radio engineering student in what is now Ural Federal University... And he decided to form a group that consisted of himself and nine other people, mainly his peers at university. Now, these were no novices. Actually, each member of the group was an experienced grade two hiker, and they also had skiing experience. Mm. And upon the return from this trip, they were going to receive their grade three certification. Now, I looked into it. I believe the the grading scale goes up to grade five nowadays Mm -hmm. as the highest level. But in 1959, grade three was the highest it could go. Oh. So they were about to reach the top level of experience. Yeah, they know what they're doing. Yeah, so it made their deaths even more unusual. So 10 hikers set out on the expedition on January 25th, 1959, and their ages ranged from 20 to 38. Mm. And there were eight men and two women on the trip. Mm-hmm. In the early morning hours of January 25th, 1959, the group arrived by train to begin their fatal expedition. Interestingly, on January 27th, one member of the group, 21-year-old Yuri Yudin, had a turn back because he had joint pain that was preventing him from walking properly and he knew he was not going to finish the hike. Mm -hmm. So he actually left the group and went back home. Mm. At the time, he did not know that this decision would save his life. And Yuri actually lived to 75 years old. He only Mm -hmm. passed away in 2013. Um, And I was watching interviews done with him and uh, reading them. And he said to this day or to the day he passed away, he had survivor's guilt. 
it's a lot like you know people that bought tickets to the titanic or something like that and, yeah like, didn't go definitely and um in one of the interviews he was actually showing off this i think it was a little teddy bear that, okay. that um this girl named Luda, she was also on the hike, and she okay. passed away. And the last picture that they took together before he left, um, they were hugging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on their camera footage. You can actually find those online, all the camera footage. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that before he left, she, give, she gave him that little teddy bear. And to the day he died, he had it. Aww. So, yeah, it was really sweet. And reading about things like that definitely makes them more human. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of these cases, they sort of become characters in true crime cases. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. when you read about them, it doesn't feel like they were actually had families, you know, and yeah. lives like that. But that definitely makes them more human. And also when reading the diaries, because I, I read the, um, they, they were in Russian, but yeah. you could translate them to English. And they talked about two of the members, so Ziri and Yuri D. Mm-hmm. They actually were writing letters home and sending postcards to their family. Mm-hmm. And they kind of had feelings for each other. Oh. Yeah, it was really, really sweet. Yeah. So in the letter, she's like, I, I love him and I don't know what to do. She, yeah, it's so cute. And she's like, he was holding this other person's hand and I got jealous. And it kind of like definitely, because you can like relate to that. Yeah, it makes them more, I mean like they're real people. Yeah. But like definitely. when you just hear it set out, it makes it sound like a story. Yeah. But it just makes you connected to them. Definitely. So you should check out the diary entries. Definitely. Yeah. And we can post some of them for use. After Yuri Yudin left, the nine remaining hikers continued trekking on. And on January 31st, the group prepared for their climb, and the following day, they started moving through the pass. Unfortunately, snowstorms made it difficult for them to see, and weather conditions were only worsening, so the group ended up deviating from their original route. When they realized their mistake, they were only less than a mile away from a site that would have provided them shelter and safety for the night. Mm. I think it was 0.8 or 0.9 miles, and they could have easily went there for the night. However, they decided to set up camp on the slope of the mountain they were in, in what would have been a deadly decision. It was speculated that Igor Dyatlov either did not want to lose the distance they gained or he wanted to practice camping on the mountain slope to push themselves further. Uh, And that's why they stayed there for the Mm -hmm. night. The group told their sports club that they would send a telegram that would arrive no later than February 12th. And Igor Dyatlov told Yuri Yudin before he departed from the hike that it may take longer because they were in a very secluded area and there would most likely be delays. Unfortunately, the telegram never came. And on February 20th, so they let it go for a few days, right? February 12th, they figured it would be delayed. However, on February 20th, with loved ones worried, rescue groups made up of volunteer students and teachers who knew the hikers set out to find them. Even military forces joined the rescue operation, utilizing planes and helicopters to find them. Mm. Nobody was prepared for what they were about to find. And in later interviews with those on the search and rescue teams, they admitted that it gave them nightmares until their final days. Mm. Don't love this (laughs) guy. On February 26th, six days into the search, one of the hikers' fellow peers found the first clue. Mm. They found the group's campsite, and its condition baffled the search party. Their tent was ripped and torn and covered in snow, and when they looked inside, the group was nowhere to be found, but all of their belongings were still inside, including their shoes, clothes, hats, gloves, three axes and two knives, and also a camera. Okay, so... Just based off of no other information besides this, it seems like they're running away from something. Okay. Okay. Good observation. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Now remember, this is freezing cold, snowy temperatures, Mm -hmm. so they could not understand why the group's shoes and clothing were still inside the tent. Nobody would do that out of choice, just leave without that. Strangely, the one item that was missing from the tent was the camera that belonged to Simon Zolotaryov. Now he asked the group to call him Sasha, so I'm going to call him that from now on. Mm Mm-hmm. Already, people were suspicious of why would he take his camera, but leave clothes, shoes, everything else behind, you know? Right. And having a camera was a luxury in 1959, so people initially True. proposed that he took it maybe so that it would not get damaged. 
However, when I explain the case more and we get into the theories, many people speculate that he took the camera to capture evidence of something more sinister that may have occurred to the group. Mm. To make matters even more bizarre, investigators discovered that the tent had been cut from the inside out, which makes the idea of him taking the camera even more strange because right. obviously they were rushing out. If you're going right. to cut it from the inside out, you're definitely trying to get away from something. Yeah. And the tent could have been easily open, so why was it frantically cut? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't the group be safer inside the tent than outside in the wilderness with wildlife and freezing cold temperatures? Yeah. This yes. would only be the first baffling piece of evidence in this case, and as investigators looked further, they became even more confused. Outside the tent, eight or nine sets of footprints were found, and some of them were either wearing just one shoe, only socks, or completely barefoot. Mm. So none of them had full gear on. Uh-huh. Interestingly, they were able to follow the prints just under one mile before they were completely covered with snow. But it is fascinating that they were able to make it that far barefoot. To me. Yes, 100%. Even just one mile, because I looked into it, and initially, in the initial reports after the incident, they said that it was 2.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. But I, <laughs> I looked into it more, and now they said that it was negative 13 to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. That's insane. And uh, there was a snowstorm blowing through. That's because also... I don't think I'm making this up. Your feet are one of your, your toes and stuff like that are one of your most sensitive areas. Yeah, like definitely. if your feet are cold, like that makes the rest of you colder. Yeah, too. it's like your head and your feet. They have right. the most heat that escapes right. from it. So I feel like that alone, your feet being on that freezing cold, mm -hmm. I would never be able to get a mile. <laughs> it, that has to be adrenaline. Like you need to get out of there. Like something must have been going on for them to make it that far. Definitely. And when they reached the forest edge, they came upon a large pine tree and underneath it sat the remains of a small fire. Next to the fire, the first two bodies were discovered. The remains of 23-year-old Yuri Krivonoshenko and 21-year-old Yuri Duroshenko were both laid out, shoeless, and wearing only underwear. Both of their hands were pretty much gone. Uh, they actually were just bloody stumps by this point. And investigators found human flesh on the branches of the pine tree that they were under, and the branches were broken about 16 and a half feet up, indicating that the hikers tried to climb it but failed. What the flip? Yeah. So this led the public to speculate that they were running away from something and just, or at least trying to get up the tree to see something on the ground. Right, yeah. When walking from the pine tree back to the camp, the search party discovered three more bodies. That of 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov, 22-year-old Zina Komogorova, and 23-year-old Rustam Slobodin. Their remains were found spread out, the first one being 980 feet from the cedar tree and the final one being 2,070 feet from the tree. The way they were laid out indicated to authorities that they were possibly walking back trying to return to the tent when they died. Mm. They were almost completely naked as well, with some of them only wearing socks. Igor Dyatlov was found lying on his back with his hands folded on his chest, like how somebody would be laid out in a coffin. He did have a few cuts and scrapes, but no super bad injuries compared to the rest of the group. Rustam had a severely fractured skull, however, they still labeled his death officially as hypothermia. Zina was also found with Igor and Rustam, and she had multiple face injuries too, but her death was labeled hypothermia as well. Mm. Since these were experienced hikers who had been in conditions like this before, people could not understand why they were nearly naked. The only idea that I've heard that made sense is called paradoxical undressing. So basically, this happens when people are in situations that are this cold, and they're suffering from hypothermia. So first, their mind kind of starts getting groggy, you okay. know? You're not thinking straight yeah. when you're suffering from hypothermia. And think about it. When you put your hand even in a bowl of ice for 30 seconds, yeah. it, it's, it's pins and needles. Yeah. So it feels like it's burning. Mm -hmm. 
So what happens in situations like these is that they think they're burning, so they take off clothes to try to get the burning sensation to go away and get cooler. Okay. So it's kind of a reverse effect. And this does happen. However, this does not happen all the time when people mm-hmm. are suffering from hypothermia. So the I, the odds that all of them would be naked right. is a bit suspicious. Unless maybe one of them saw one person do it, and then they were like, okay, let's try that. Maybe, yeah. It could have been that situation. Um, but still, we don't know for sure, and this is all speculation. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that does kind of make sense to me. It does make sense, but you're right. The odds of all of them doing the exact same thing are low. Yeah. Once these five were found, the search party's faith was dwindling that they would find the other four alive. Unfortunately, it took over two months of excruciating long and cold Mm. searching before they were finally found. The four remaining hikers were discovered on May 4th, 1959, under 13 feet of snow in a ravine. Interestingly, the ravine was 246 feet further into the woods than the cedar tree where the first bodies were discovered, indicating that these four outlived the rest of the group. Mm. So they were found in running water in a creek. Uh, so when, obviously in February, it was frozen. Yeah. But by the time they found them, it was sort of melting. And it baffled investigators that the hikers would run towards these freezing cold conditions. Interestingly, three of the bodies were clothed pretty well. And when further investigating, they found that some of the clothing belonged to the hikers who died first. And they most likely took their clothes to stay warm. Mm. But still, it doesn't really answer the question of... If they took other people's clothes, then why didn't they have clothes? Right, they, somebody didn't have clothes like, in the first place, which well, I feel like make most sense. of them didn't have clothes on, right? Right, yeah. It is kind of um, weird. It also reminds me of Yuba County Five when we were talking about I forgot their names. I believe it was Jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was inside that uh, like sanctuary right, thing with no right, shoes on, like right. all that, where he was missing his clothes too. I mean, it kind of reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's break us down and discuss the investigation. Okay. Authorities working on this case did not even know where to begin, and many said it was the most bizarre case they ever worked on. Yeah, it really makes no sense up to this point. (laughs) No. A legal inquest started immediately upon discovery of the first five bodies, because remember, the final four were discovered two months later. Right. So they started working on it already. The medical examiners determined that no deadly injuries occurred, and these five deaths were concluded to be hypothermia. Mm -hmm. Which, even if it was no deadly injuries that occurred, they still had head wounds and stuff. Right. So that is suspicious. Now, when the remaining four bodies of Nikolai, Sasha, Alexander, and Luda were examined, authorities, as well as the general public and the loved ones of the hikers, thought that this would be an open-shut case, that they would also have died of hypothermia. Mm-hmm. Because they did only make it 246 feet past the pine tree where the first victims were found, and in those weather conditions, you could die of hypothermia in under 15 minutes. Mm. However, the narrative was drastically changed when autopsy results came back. Strangely, three of the hikers suffered fatal injuries. Nikolai, like Rustam, had a bad skull injury, and his head was actually bashed in, and they determined that this was fatal. And his jaw was broken as well. Mm-hmm. The official cause of death was recorded as fatal skull injury, but investigators could never determine what caused it. Mm. Sasha was missing his eyeballs. He also had a bad skull wound, and his official cause of death was severe chest trauma, which they did not expect. They mm. thought it would also be a head wound. Yeah. Uh, so some people speculate maybe animals ate his eyeballs or maybe it was just, you know, being in the ravine that messed yeah. with it. But uh, most people, I'd say, think that something weirder happened. Yeah. And Sasha's ribs were actually split open from the amount of pressure that was put on his chest. Mm. But like Nikolai, they could not determine what had caused this. Mm-hmm. Alexander had an open wound behind his ear. However, his death was also labeled hypothermia. Now, the final hiker that was found, Eluda... She was missing her eyeballs, nose, lips, which many people believe could have been animals or the water. However, she was also missing her tongue, and it seemed like her tongue was ripped out. Mm, 
terrible. Yes. And the sickest part, her mouth was frozen wide open, and authorities believe that she was screaming when she died. <sighs> her cause of death was internal bleeding caused by severe chest trauma. That's so weird. I know. The medical examiners said that the pressure that would have had to be exerted on them to cause these injuries would have to be about as forceful as being in a car crash. Mm. Mm-hmm. Also, if they had suffered this amount of pressure, there would have been visible external injuries. Now, this is the part where people start questioning things. There was only internal injuries to the body and no external injuries. Okay. So if a person had done that, for instance, or an animal... Oh, yeah, you would be able to There would be external injuries. It, yeah. Interestingly, when this first happened, all of their deaths were labeled hypothermia. And the file said that the injuries were caused by a, quote, compelling force. But no force was ever identified. The Russian government issued a government resolution and closed the case very quickly before they could even really fully investigate it. Of course. And they also closed the files to the public and pretty much put them in the archives away. Mm. Now, this received so much public backlash. Well, yeah. Yeah. This sounds like they figured out what's going on and yeah. like, we got shut down. <laughs> so much so that the Russian government finally gave access to only a small portion of the files and they only gave access to journalists and, right. you know, those kind of people, not just the public. Yeah. And they claim that the report said that the injuries could not have been caused by human beings because the blows were too strong. They also said that the reports indicate extremely high levels of radiation that were found on one of the victim's clothing. Or I'm not sure if it was just one of the victims, but mm -hmm. it was found on the victims. And not only were the hikers radioactive, but their campsite was as well. Huh. Yeah. Now, this will all come into play when we discuss the theories. Yeah, like, I, I feel bad because I'm not really, like, saying anything back, but it's just, like, so confusing up to this point. That it is. It's, like, none of it... I mean, these all seem like three, four different crimes, and yeah, then, but it it's does. all the same site. Yeah. So the case was officially closed in May 1959, and since there was no guilty party to blame, they couldn't go to court for anything. Mm -hmm. And the official conclusion was, quote, deaths because of a compelling natural force. Compelling mm -hmm. natural force. Okay, <laughs> sure. After this, the files were closed and sent to a secret archive where the public could not access it. And right off the bat, people found it strange how secretive the government was being, and this only fed conspiracy theorists, of course, yeah. adding fuel to the fire. People became even more suspicious when two hikers went to Yuri K's funeral, and they told his family that they were hiking in the same area at the same time that the hikers um, passed away, mm -hmm. and they saw flying orange spheres that night. That feels a little fishy. Yeah. I don't really know about that. And that feels I'm, like if this was, you said it already had public attention. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if I buy that immediately. I think you're going to get your mind changed. Yeah, soon. I'm probably going to take that back in two <laughs> seconds. Another group of hikers came forward a few months later to authorities, and they said that they were only hiking 30 miles away from where the bodies of the Dyatlov Pass hikers were found. And they also saw strange orange spheres flying through the sky the night they mysteriously died. Mm. So it's aliens. <laughs> Interestingly, many other witnesses came forward to support this and said they also saw these spheres in the sky from February to March of 1959. Mm. This threw people for a loop and led to the formation of many conspiracy theories. Yeah. Despite this case being ruled an accident, the public continued to push for it to be reopened because they felt that there was something the Russian government was just not telling them. It took a long time, but finally, on February 1st, 2019, 60 years to the day of the incident... That's insane mm -hmm. that it took that long for something to get done. Yeah, 60 years to the day. Uh, Russian authorities reopened the case. Hmm. However, they only planned to investigate other natural accidents, right, like hurricanes, course. snow, yeah. uh, and they were not open to consider that a crime may have happened. <laughs> I know. That's the whole point of reopening a case, I but know. whatever. <laughs> this angered the public, considering that it took 60 years to finally reopen the case. Right. But people were excited that maybe we'd finally get some answers. Yeah. However, they officially closed the case quickly 
after reopening it. And it's officially labeled Avalanche. Right. Avalanche. Yeah. Avalanche? Avalanche. I like the natural, like, forces better than <laughs> Avalanche. Yeah. That's so that so is, stupid. to this day, it's officially labeled that it was just an avalanche that came down and killed the hikers. That feels like they just opened it to, like, get people to shut up about it and, like, make it a publicity thing. And then they just, like, knew they were going to close it right away. Tune in to next week's episode to discuss the many theories surrounding this case, many of which point to a possible government cover-up. Hey queens, welcome back to the second half of this week's episode. Just a reminder that this week and next week's episodes are going to be the same topic. We have two parters to end the season out with, so make sure you stay tuned for the second half for next week as well. Now, for this week, we are going to be talking about the countless conspiracies that surround the death of Princess Diana. I'm excited for this. Because I don't know too much about the royal family. Right. So I am probably too invested in them. (laughs) I keep up with their drama a lot. Uh Um, Obviously, this is very different than the drama and what's been going on. But honestly, it's not. There's so many comparisons between Meghan Markle and Diana and just how events have happened in the past are just kind of reflecting themselves now. So I figured with everything going on, this would be a good time to talk about this. Topic. Yeah, even just stuff going on now, though, I don't know anything about. So it's I'll like, get with into Meghan Markle and everything. I have no clue. I'm going to get into a little bit like at the very end, mm-hmm. just because I think the comparisons are fascinating. Mm-hmm. So also this conspiracy has reemerged in its cultural relevance, not just because of what's going on with Meghan and Harry, but because of The Crown, which is a very popular TV show on Netflix. It's good. <laughs> I never heard of it. <laughs> it's good. I actually haven't watched the last season that features Diana in it, but it's just basically going through the Queen's life. And this latest season is the one that had a young Charles and Diana. Okay. So. <laughs> Wait, so is Diana the Queen's son or Charles? Is this- Charles is the Queen's son. <laughs> okay. Diana is the Married wife. Okay, yeah. okay. I mean, Diana's not just random, like, her family is a larger, like, respected, noble family. Okay. But, yeah, she's the one that's married into the family, and Charles is Elizabeth's and Philip's son. Okay. (laughs) I also just want to say, even if you don't believe in conspiracies around her death, I think it's fair to say that the dangerous environment, harmful press, and extreme mistreatment that she was treated with definitely led to and had some impact on her death and how she got to that point in time. I think if she was treated differently in her lifetime, she probably would have survived past that crash, to be quite honest. Yeah. Now, before I get into her actual death, I think it's important to get into her backstory and life a little bit, as is important to the conspiracies, obviously, and understanding of her actual death in the crash. So Diana Frances Spencer was born on July 1st, 1961, to John and Frances Spencer. The Spencer family had very close ties and allegiance to the British royal family, as many women in her family were ladies-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth. So basically, the peop- like, you've ever seen a movie where there's, like, a queen and there's a young lady, like, that helps get dressed mm-hmm. and, like, that kind of stuff. So that's what the women in her family were to Queen Elizabeth, okay. basically. So they were always kind of involved with the family. Yes. Right. And I believe they, the place that the Spencer family lived, I mean, wasn't rented to, but was granted to them. It was a property owned by the royal family. In school, Diana was described as shy. However, she was talented in music and athletics, and she won an award at school for basically community relations and student fellowship. So was she popular in school? Um, I would say she had to be popular to a degree. Just because of the award she won meant that she was, like, you know, helpful to her other students. 
Um, again, she was shy, so she was probably more reserved and more quiet, but I wouldn't say that that necessarily meant she, like, didn't have friends. Okay. So her parents separated when Diana was very young. They separated in 1967 and divorced in 1969. Which year did you say she was born again? 1961. So she was like six? Yeah, she was still a kid kid. So did she live with her mom or her dad? So she initially lived with her mother and then her father during holiday. However, her father ended up receiving custody of her full time, which I mean, even now, like it's not very often that the father would get full custody. But especially at that time, that was kind of a big deal. Was there a reason for it? Honestly, I think the fact that he was the Lord, like he was the one that was a Spencer and the mom was married into it, probably had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's what I think. I don't think her mom was like a terrible person, at least at this point. She okay. doesn't turn into the greatest person. We'll get into that a little later. <laughs> so was she closer with her mom or her dad and like her uh, older? At life? this point, I would say her mom. Okay. When she was a kid. She was very protective of her mom. Both of her parents ended up remarrying, and Diana had a tumultuous relationship with her stepmother, Rain Spencer. Diana called her a bully in interviews before, and there was an incident in which she pushed her down a set of stairs one time. Who? Who pushed who? Diana pushed Rain, her stepmom, down the stairs. However, I will add that in the last year of her life, Diana and Rain actually developed an almost confidant relationship with each other, as Diana's relationship with her actual mother began to deteriorate due to her mother's extreme disapproval of Diana dating a Muslim man. Mm -hmm. So you see how she was a good person back then, and maybe not. It's later on down the road. In her late teen years, she had a few odds and ends jobs. Most of them included her working with children, such as her working as a nursery teacher's assistant. That was the main one and the last job that she had before she married into the royal family. But when I was looking at it, legitimately, like, every single job she had was something working with kids. Mm -hmm. So you could tell she already had that, like, maternal instinct. Now, Diana and Prince Charles actually met after Charles and Sarah Spencer, Diana's older sister, who she had a great relationship with, had briefly dated. Okay, so he dated her sister first? Yes. And her sister... I mean, I don't know the details on if her sister is the one that broke it off, but her sister had said before that she didn't think she was going to marry Charles. Like, Mm -hmm. she didn't actually love him, so she had no interest in it. (laughs) Although they met for the first time in 1977, they became romantically linked in 1980 after Diana attended a party that Charles was playing polo at. Charles is actually the one who took an interest in courting her first... After Diana and Charles went on a yacht getaway together, (laughs) and she was well-received by the royal family, Diana and Charles were engaged by 1981. That's so much pressure. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I can only... I mean, it's... I feel like it's already pressure to, like, meet somebody's family like that. I can only imagine if you're, like, you're meeting the family and it's the queen. Because then everything (laughs) you do is scrutinized. Oh, 100%. Every move you make, everything you wear, everything is just in the public eyes immediately. So after kind of becoming isolated after living in Buckingham Palace before her marriage, so like in between when she got engaged and when she got married, she described it as one of the loneliest periods in her life. She was married to Charles on July 29th, 1981 at the age of 20. That's really young. Very young. So it was only a year after they met that they got engaged, you said? Yeah, so they met in 1977, but they didn't start dating each other until 1980, so it was only a year after they actually started dating. So was that the first person that she dated or was married to? It's the first person that she had married. That's crazy young, though, because your brain isn't even developed at that age. Right. And at this point, I will say uh, William is in his 30s. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like he's, like, 39. Mm -hmm. Like, 31 feels better than, like, 39 (laughs) does, but it still feels a little meh. Yeah. So they would have started dating when she was 18, 19, Mm -hmm. which, like, meh. (laughs) But, you know, Mm -hmm. 
whatever. We'll go past that for now. <laughs> so she gave birth to William, her first son, on June 21st, 1982. So this is only a year after they'd gotten married. And she unfortunately suffered from postpartum depression following this. I actually heard about this part. That she had the, yeah. suffered from depression. She did unfortunately suffer from quite a few mental illness and... Of course, just because of the time period, but also because of who she was, she definitely didn't get the support that she would have required for it. So she then had Harry on September 15th, 1984. During this time, she became widely loved by both the UK and the world. Unfortunately, her marriage to Charles fell apart rather quickly, though. Besides the very different personalities and wide age gap, extramarital affairs deteriorated their marriage. Now, I will say they both did have affairs. Mm -hmm. It's not just Charles that had the affair. However, just looking at the situation that each was in, I do have much more sympathy and understanding for Diana's actions than Charles's actions. <laughs> I mean, it does appear that Charles was the one that and had the affair is. first, okay. I guess. Which, I mean, of course, it's not good for either of them to have one, but, like, he did it first, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Also, his was with an ex-girlfriend, so which shows that there was kind of, like, that feelings really that were still talking. harboring. Exactly, right. So... Although Charles claims that he began began his affair with Camilla, a former girlfriend who is now his wife, Mm. which mm, (laughs) after Diana and him had separated, Diana stated in a very famous interview in 1995 that there was, quote, three of us in this marriage. So it was a bit crowded when referring to Camilla. I feel like it's so hard, though, to be in part of like any public eye because all your relationships feel superficial oh a hundred percent a thousand percent because it becomes more of a narrative that Mm -hmm. the public makes rather than how you're actually feeling about the relationship it's so easy for that to get involved in the actual a thousand percent so diana also stated in the same interview from 1995 that she suffered from depression an eating disorder and had in the past self-harm so like i said she had a lot of things going on that she was just not getting the help for Diana, after Charles had already began his affair with Camilla, again, this is the timeline that you kind of piece together. I can't, like, officially confirm that, but that's what the public basically believes. She had an affair with James Hewitt, who was an officer in the British Army. Despite Harry being born years before the affair began, rumors persisted for years that Hewitt was Harry's father which frankly I believe was a conspiracy that the press made up in order to paint Diana in a negative light because they could see basically the direction the na- marriage was going. Do they look similar? They do. I like I w- I completely understand like why at first glance you could be like, "Oh, maybe," but just the timeline makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. Uh Hewitt said like we were not together before Harry was born, so it makes no sense. I really just think it was something that I mean, really, truly, especially now, you could see with Meghan Markle, the royal family and that institution controls what the press says and doesn't say. Hmm. So I think that they got that story going in order to make Diana look bad. So you, wait, you think the, the royal family kind of started it? Yes. Okay. Started that rumor. And then, or even if the, anything that the press says, the royal family basically can shut it down if they don't want it to be said. And they didn't bother to shut this one down. Mm-hmm. So that makes me feel like even if they didn't start the story, they weren't mad that it was started. After back and forth in the press for a few years, Charles and Diana finally officially divorced on August 28th, 1996, basically at the Queen's request. <laughs> because at some point she was like, this is not going anywhere and like, just end it. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the Queen actually wanting Diana to keep the Your Royal Highness title, 
Charles actually requested that she did not get to keep it. I I don't like him. <laughs> However, as she was still the mother of the future king, she was still considered Princess of Wales and Who's a member the of the king? royal family. So William will be king one day. Okay, her first son? Yes. Okay. So she's still a part of the royal family because the future king, that's your son. Yeah. So she's still a part of the family, but she doesn't have her titles anymore. But she's still the Princess of Wales, and she was still in the royal family. Diana's most significant relationship outside of Charles was heart surgeon Hasnot Khan, with most close to her after her death, considering him the love of her life. By the summer of 1997, however, Diana had begun a relationship with Dodi Fayed. I know that name. Yeah, so he was the son of a billionaire. Okay. Like, <laughs> so, I, I don't know how he looks, but I know his name because of the crash. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, his family was decently famous, and he was also a film producer, so... So none of these people marry, just, I mean, date normal people? No, definitely not. People. <laughs> so now I'm going to get into the actual events of Princess Diana's death and the crash that happened. On August 30th, 1997, Diana and Fayed arrived in Paris by jet after spending the prior several days on Fayed's father's yacht. The plane was for them to travel to London after staying at the Hotel Ritz Paris, which was owned by the Fayed family. After a decoy car left the hotel, Diana, Dodie, Trevor Reese Jones, who was a part of the Fayed family's personal security team, and Henry Paul, who was part of also security from the Ritz Hotel, left out of the back to evade the countless paparazzi that were waiting for them. So none of these were the like royal family security? No. Okay. These were all people that were connected to Dodie's family. Okay. That's interesting that none of her security was there. Well, quite honestly, the royal family, she, to, to be honest, I'm gonna, I was going to blame it all on Charles. <laughs> she also did not want that much security because she didn't want to feel like she was indebted or connected to the royal family as much okay. as she was. Also, I mean, Charles had definitely played a part in her not getting a lot of the benefits that normally would come with being in the royal family. But so, it's not all on them. Diana yeah. also was trying to, like, disconnect herself a little bit. It's weird, because this whole time, like, I don't know much about this case, but yeah. I know a little bit. And I always thought the driver was part, at least the royal family had hired him yeah. or something. I, I, understandably, because yeah. you think somebody in the royal family would have plenty of security and uh, their own personal driver and stuff like that around them. But I mean, I guess when you're dating a billionaire, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so this driver, did she know him beforehand or would they just meet at the hotel now? I don't believe so because he was not, well, they were on the plane together. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the drive was the first time that she met them, but he wasn't their usual driver. Okay. So it wasn't somebody that she trusted. No. Her. Yeah. It's not the usual person that would drive them anywhere. Because they sent the actual person that would usually drive them out first with a decoy car so that the paparazzi would get fooled and follow that oh, car okay, instead okay. of following this one. So that makes I'll, sense. I'll get into more detail about these people, but especially Paul, who was the driver a little later. Because, honestly, most of the conspiracies revolve around him. So did the first driver... I'm sorry, I'm asking a lot of questions. Yeah, that's fine. The first driver who was the decoy, the one who normally drove them, yes. did he do interviews and stuff and talk about it? Um, not much. Mm -hmm. Most of the people that did the interviews afterwards were, um, people that were close to Diana and not actually connected to the crash itself. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of people that would have had specific details about the crash that did interviews afterwards. Mm -hmm. 
Also, it's worth noting, it comes into conspiracy a little bit later, that none of the passengers on board were wearing seatbelts. So at 12... Was that usual? We'll get into it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) At 12.23 at night, Paul lost control of the car at the entrance of the Pointe de Lalma tunnel, which is a cross bridge that travels past the Sienne in Paris. The car hit the right-hand wall, swerved into the left lane, and then collided head-on with a pillar that supported the roof of the tunnel. Before impact, the car had been traveling 65 miles per hour, which doesn't sound like a lot if it was like on a highway, but this was actually double the speed limit for the entrance of the tunnel. Oh, wow. Right. So clearly something was up. Immediately following the crash, it was actually the photographers and paparazzi that were following them that arrived first on the scene, which actually made it a mess. While many did try to help the passengers, most swarmed around for pictures, with many of them being arrested for their actions after police arrived 10 minutes after the crash, which, thank God, because that's, that's so, so messed, messed up. up. Yeah. I can't even imagine you getting there and your first thought is, let me get a photo of this and not let me see if mm-hmm. I can help them in any way. That's also another part about being like famous. Your whole life is like a movie and you become a character in it. Oh, so when 100%. you die, it's not even like a person died. Right, so the public gets upset and mourns it, but it's very different than somebody that you know dying it's like i don't know it just feels like a right like a character in a movie Mm -hmm. so paul and syed were pronounced dead almost immediately after the crash reese jones suffered a head contusion and had severe facial injuries and bruising and due to their severe head injury reese jones had never been able to recall the events surrounding the crash that was the security guy right yeah okay Off-duty physician Frederick Malise was the first to help Diana, and although she did not have any visible physical injuries, she was in a state of shock. So she was alive still? Yes. Hmm. After being removed from the vehicle, she went into cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated, and she was. She arrived at the hospital at 2.06. However, she was pronounced dead by 4 o'clock, as her heart had been displaced into the right side of her chest, tearing her pulmonary vein. Was she able to talk at all? Um, so people that first got there, um, she was basically mumbling like, oh my God, oh my God, when she, so she was conscious Mm -hmm. when it first happened. It's basically the shock and obviously her heart displacing that caused her to have the heart attack. It wasn't like her head got injured or she was like completely unconscious. She was aware of her surroundings at the, at least at the impact of the crash. Okay. And the other most important detail from the crash was that Paul, who remember was a driver, had a blood alcohol level of 1.75 grams per liter of blood, which is about 3.5 times the legal limit in France. Mm-hmm. Which, right. <laughs> now, did he ever drive... So he drove other people before, right? Uh, he So he was aware of cars, but he wasn't, like, a chauffeur. I was going to say, because then did he ever do that before? Did he ever have, like, no, DUIs No, I mean, that? has he... Well, we'll get into that. He was an alcoholic. Okay. And But he was not a chauffeur by any means. He wasn't a usual person that people would count on to drive them. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end, I will get into the reaction that the public had in regards to her death. However, I think it's worth mentioning here just how much of an effect her death on society had on society as a whole, both politically and even economically, as she was grieved immensely. And as much as this is really depressing to say, she was treated and respected so well in her death that I think that if she had been given the same decency while she was alive, her life would have gone much differently. So, right after the crash, a French investigation determined that Diana's death was directly caused by the crash, and that the paparazzi that many believed was a causing factor in her death were actually a good distance away from the car at the time of the crash. An inquest, known as Operation Paget, was conducted, as is whenever a sudden death occurs in England, which took years to complete, 
However, after it was put before a jury and millions of dollars were put into the investigation, there was no evidence of a larger conspiracy at play. However, this investigation, unlike the initial French one, did acknowledge the role that the paparazzi played in the accident, not just the recklessness of the driver. Now I'm going to save the larger theories for part two in next week's episode. However, I'm going to get into some of the smaller ones that might paint a bigger picture for how the crash played out. Okay. One that I'd actually not heard of before looking deeper into it was the suspicious nature of no one wearing a seatbelt. Yeah. There is substantial evidence that Princess Diana religiously wore her seatbelt. Her sister was actually the one that said she always wore it. So very dependable, somebody that would have been in cars with her many, many times. Mm -hmm. After looking into the car, it was determined that all of the seatbelts were in a usable condition except for the right rear seatbelt, which of course just so happened to be the one that Diana was sitting in. But the other ones didn't have it on either? The other ones weren't wearing it, but they could have been. Okay. Diana's wasn't usable. The investigations have led to the idea that the impact and crash was what broke the seatbelt. However, obviously, people use this as evidence of tampering. Mm -hmm. So they say that it broke because of the crash. But if you're someone that religiously wears your seatbelt, you probably would have noticed it maybe switched sides yeah. with uh, Dodie instead of sitting on that side. But Were they drunk, too? Or is there any evidence of no, that? No. Okay. Just Dodie. And not Dodie, sorry. The driver, Henry Paul. Paul. Yeah. Okay. This is all especially sad because multiple reports have shown that Diana's injuries would have only been minor had she been wearing a seatbelt. So that is suspicious if she wear always wear it. <laughs> right. That's what makes it more suspicious. It's not uncommon for people to not wear seatbelts, but since people have said that she normally would, that's yeah. what makes it weird. Now, another smaller detailed theory that some people have claimed to have witnessed was a bright light, which may have caused the driver to become blinded. There are more than one witness that claimed that they saw a bright white light, one strong enough to have blinded Paul as he was driving. This made people come to the conclusion that a bright light was set off purposely in order to blind Paul. However, the main and original witness to this, Francoise Levestre, gave conflicting reports of the flash initially. Also, his wife, that was in the car with him at the time of the crash, denies seeing a flashing light. However, a second witness, Brian Anderson, also claims to have seen the bright light. Levestre's claims were not considered reliable in court, as he had previously been punished for dishonesty in court. So, he also might have just wanted the attention from it. Right. So th there is a second witness to seeing it. However, only one reliable source on a light. Like You can't really use that in court, especially if one you can't even use at all. Maybe I'm making this up, but wasn't there a motorcyclist that said something? Um, so there are other drivers specifically that... As much as people witness the crash, it's a lot of the stuff people seeing people exit out of the tunnel on the other side those are the people that are more suspicious uh -huh. so there are there is specifically another car that i'm going to get into it's actually the one that i kind of like believe the most that comes out the other end of the tunnel so it's not a motorcyclist but okay. there's other vehicles that become suspicious later on okay so that's where we're going to end episode one <laughs> tune in next week for the conspiracy theories about paul yes and more of the did the government do it? Conspiracies, which you know are always my favorite. Yeah, so definitely check out for next week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Tune in every Friday for more mystery and madness. Bye, queens. <laughs>